Good morning. Good to see you here this beautiful Sunday morning. And boy, what a day we had yesterday. Amazing. First of all, one of the main takeaways, I think, for many of us, me certainly, is that two churches got together to make sure that people could hear truth. And the church needs to be doing a lot more than that these days. Instead of arguing over this or that or the other thing, get together, charge the gates of hell, rescue people from death. So first of all, I want to say thank you to Calvary Church for opening their doors and making their facility available to us. And secondly, you guys are awesome. Unbelievable how... People from this body served all day long from our security team, which is stellar and watching over our guests and those in the facility, our ushers and those who made sure people made their way through the registration process. And in case somebody was wondering, why are you having it off site? Why aren't you having it here at the church? Well, over 1,800 people wouldn't look very good in this room. And we had a wonderful attendance yesterday, and Pastor Dave and Charlie and all their efforts that were put forth to make sure everything ran smoothly, uh, indeed ensured that it did. And it was a great day, and I want to thank you all personally uh, who came and served and made the day so efficiently wonderful. And by the way, we're kind of doing things a little bit different this year as far as what's going to happen afterwards. By this afternoon, all four sessions will be loaded up on our YouTube page. So if you're not a follower or subscriber to the Truth About God, that's the name of our page, make sure you get there and subscribe. And all four messages from yesterday uh, will be there for listening and sharing. So uh, the extent and the reach of an event like this I think just because of the age that we live in, the Internet age, is beyond our scope of understanding. Uh, we had, obviously, we were broadcasting Facebook Live. Amir was broadcasting Facebook Live. Jack was broadcasting Facebook Live. We had over 20,000 people on Facebook watching Proximity yesterday. And then I got an email from uh, the owner of his channel this morning that said throughout the day yesterday, now this isn't the number for proximity, but throughout the day yesterday, there were 750,000 people on his channel's website watching live programs. Now they don't have a way to make sure it was this or that particular program, but a good percentage of those people were watching proximity yesterday. So as he emailed me back, kind of following up, he said, uh, the audience would have filled several football stadiums. So we had several hundred thousand people watching online. And just to put forth the effort and make sure everything was presentable, that all of the media aspects of it were worthy of being out there representing the Lord, is just a wonderful feat and a credit to you all who put your hands to the plow so we could tell people, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming a day sooner today than he was yesterday, by the way. So are you ready for 2019? Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. We'll look at verses 12 through 21 this morning. Now, our word for the year is an exciting one to be sure. It's a word to act on. It's a word to apply to our lives. It's a word that is going to encourage us. It's also a word that is going to engage us in worship of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we've got a pair of duos, or a triad of duos, I should say, concerning our word. We're going to pronounce it two different ways this year. 
If you don't know what our word is, it's on the front of the podium. Our word is blessed or blessed, we'll find it pronounced. We're going to find it in two different languages. Obviously, the languages, two of the three languages the Bible is written in, Hebrew and Greek. And in each of those languages, we're going to find it in two different words translated as blessed into English. Now, we will find the English word blessed translated from the Hebrew word baruch, as in the greeting Jesus received when he rode into Jerusalem as prophesied by Zechariah on the back of a donkey where the adoring crowd said to him, Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word baruch means to kneel in adoration. It means to bless. Now, we also will find the Hebrew word eris, which means happiness. Now, this parallels the Greek word uh, makarios that we're going to encounter. And it's in our theme verse for 2019 that we'll look at here in a moment. And it means what we often think of and have heard described concerning the Beatitudes, the blessed are these. Oh, how happy. It is the word uh, for happiness. And finally, among our PowerPoint verses later this year, we're going to find the Greek word eulogitos, which obviously we get our word eulogy from. And eulogy means praise words. It actually means in the Greek adoration or to be praised. And God obviously being the object of our adoration of praise will be our focus when we encounter that particular word. So let me just say this. We're in for quite a year. We're going to spend our year blessing God and in return, learn how to live a blessed life. Now, we're going to launch into the new year, beginning where the Bible ends. Because the truth is, after what we heard yesterday all day long, this may be the only PowerPoint verse we have a chance to study this year. The Lord is coming for us. Amen. Now, to help us understand the magnitude just simply by the placement of what's in front of us, we need to consider that we are about to read the very last words of Jesus that are recorded in the Bible directed to the church. Now, one thing we need to remember also, I think, the Gospels are Jesus dealing with the Jewish people. He came to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew or the Greek or the Gentile. Now, we also need to recognize that the only direct communication of Jesus to the church corporate is found in the book of Revelation. Also, on the other end of the book, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where he addresses the churches in Asia Minor. Now, the placement is important for this reason. We've made the point in the past concerning the Apostle Paul and his last words to Timothy in the last chapter of his last Epistle, And so we should consider the words in front of us as being the last of Jesus in the Bible as words chosen very carefully in an effort to summarize all that has been said before, knowing it would be the last recorded words. Now, Paul's words would be his last written before his death. Jesus' words are the last words written before his return. Now, what Paul wrote in summation of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, 14 to 18, he said this. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You must also beware of him. For he has greatly resisted our words. In my first offense or defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me. Somebody say amen to that. And strengthened me so that the message might be fully preached through me. 
and that all the Gentiles might hear. For I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul writes at the end of his time on earth how he was forsaken by all. Jesus at the end of his time on earth was forsaken by all before his death. Paul wrote that this not be charged against him. Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them. Jesus didn't hold it against his disciples for forsaking them, including Peter. Paul was delivered from the mouth of the lion. Jesus was delivered from the roaring lion who sought to steal, kill, and destroy his efforts to save mankind. Paul's last words were about the heavenly kingdom. Jesus' last words are about the kingdom of heaven. I'm thinking it's important we consider carefully the last words of a man used greatly by God and by the God who used that man greatly. And our title this morning for our first month of 2019, from the last words of Jesus recorded in scripture, has to be simply this. And our title is, A Benediction of Blessing. A Benediction of Blessing. Now, our title is a bit redundant because the word benediction actually means to bestow a blessing. But I think you also recognize it is the concluding statement in any dialogue or a blessing spoken over others. So we are seeing a benediction, Jesus' closing statements, and it comes in the form of a blessing. Now, what our text is going to reveal as the Lord bestows this promised blessing to his church is that there are those who are not going to experience or be the recipients of all that he has promised. And the point that he's going to make is why that is so. And it will be made very clear. It's interesting that Paul and his concluding chapter issues a warning. Jesus in his concluding words issues a warning. There's another final warning in scripture that we'll mention also this morning as we make our way through our text. So let's kick off this year being blessed of and blessing the Lord by examining the last words of Jesus to his church recorded in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible written for the express purpose of unveiling who Jesus is by reading his benediction of blessing over you and over me. Are you ready? Would you stand to read with me, please? Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 21. Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. 
Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful for the start of a new year to have such a magnificent reminder of such a blessed promise before us. So, Lord, would you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying today? I ask you, God, to anoint the words that are spoken as well, that we might come away equipped for the work of ministry and more expectant of your return and therefore more passionate about those perishing without you around us. Bring us to those ends, we pray today, through our time in your book. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first of the three bestowed blessings we're going to encounter here is found in verses 12 to 15. And if we back up a few verses, we're going to find that after a long absence in the book of the words of Jesus, he inserts himself in the narrative once again by restating a promise made all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, combined with a promise reiterated in verse 12 of coming suddenly. That's what the word quickly means. He says, behold, I am coming suddenly or by surprise. Now, back in chapter 1, the initial statement of the promise we have in our text is in verse 3, where he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. In other words, like the point was made yesterday, all day long, there are things we can see without knowing the day or the hour of his return that indicate the time is near. That's what proximity by definition means. Nearness in time, place, or relationship. Now, in an age where prophecy is viewed as the focus of the foolish, we would do well to recognize it's foolish to ignore prophecy. And the Greek word translated blessed is in this uh, first And last chapter of Revelation is the Greek word I mentioned a moment ago, uh, makarios, which means be happy. But the primary meaning is supremely blessed. Anybody want to sign up for that kind of life? Supremely blessed is the meaning of the word. It can also mean to be fortunate or well off. Now, he also mentions guarding or keeping those things which are written in it. And the word keep comes from the Greek word tereo, and it means to guard from loss or injury. And that, again, pointing to the importance of recognizing the value of the study of prophecy. Now, this gives us something to consider right off the bat, that is maybe uh, the fact that the church wouldn't be in this poor, poor spiritual condition it's in globally if the majority of the church didn't disparage the teaching of prophecy. Because what we could come away with and paraphrase is simply this. Supremely blessed are those who do not allegorize the book of Revelation. Supremely blessed are those who do not historicize the book of, Re- book of Revelation. Supremely blessed, fortunate, and well-off are those who guard from loss or injury the prophecies within the book of Revelation. This is the only book in the Bible that comes with a promise to the reader. So why would we want to ignore it? I can't tell you how many times I have heard. I can't even tell you how many times I heard it yesterday from people who said, our church never talks about prophecy. Our church never cracks open the book of Revelation. And the fact is, I told several people yesterday, it's because there are a lot of pastors who are afraid of it. Well, listen, 
if God has called you to the ministry, he's called you to teach 65 books in the Bible, not 60, uh, 66 books in the Bible, not 60. How many books does your have? Mine has uh, 66, I'm pretty sure. Whatever I was trying to say, I think you get the point. We need to teach the whole Bible, right? Including the 27% of it that pertains to eschatology or things concerning the last days or Bible prophecy. Now, we are supremely blessed, fortunate, and well-off to begin our year with a benediction of blessing from the Lord Jesus himself. Now, he opens this benediction with an imperative, an imperative uh, saying, Behold, my coming is going to be sudden, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And he then connects back to chapter 1 and the description of himself that's given there, identifying him as deity in Revelation 1.8. He identifies himself as the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He then says that he is the beginning and the end which is, as is his final statement, an associated uh, phrase with God himself. Says the Lord, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. And this establishes for us both Jesus' authority and his ability to come once again. He is the beginning and the end, meaning he was present and active in the creative process. Colossians tells us that he was present in the beginning and all things were created by him, through him and for him. And there was nothing made that he did not make. He was there in beginning, in the beginning as a creator, and he is there to bring things to an end as almighty God. And the fact is, he then speaks this benedictory blessing over those who do his commandments. And then he gives the insight that doing his commandments affords people access to the tree of life, which is within the heavenly city. Now, then he switches from the literal to the figurative when he begins to mention those who are outside. Now, let me just say this this morning. There's a lot of people, and to me, it's one of the most bizarre understandings of Scripture that uh, some Bible scholars have come up with. And that is that they make hell into something that is not literal. When we've given so many physical descriptions about the place being a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of outer darkness where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, and other things that cannot be allegorized or made into something that is uh, some type of spiritual lesson. Hell is a place. Are you here this morning? Hell is a place. And after all, think about it. If there's no hell, what did Jesus come to save us from? He came to save us from eternal separation from him. And now Jesus switches from the literal to the figurative, mentioning those outside. But we need to understand that he is talking about outside being separated from him. There are going to be people outside the gates of the new Jerusalem clawing at the gates to get in. They're going to be in outer darkness far away from wherever it is that uh, uh, that place is going to be when uh, the second death has come upon them. And we're not going to uh, look outside the gates of the heavenly city and say, look at all the people that want to get in. Revelation 21.8 also says, but the cowardly, I've always found it fascinating that the term associated with those thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, is the coward. That's the first attribute that is named. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all what? Liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the... 
Second death. It doesn't sound like after you die, you simply go into oblivion. It sounds like there's an eternal existence that is very distinct from living inside the city where the tree of life is. Now, those who do not do his commandments imply what the commandments are. If these are things that we are to not do or do, whichever way the commandment is presented, to stay away from some things, to uh, embrace other things as our practices, if these are things that keep things, keep people outside the heavenly city and therefore determine their eternal destiny in the lake of fire, tells us there are things that God wants us to avoid. Now some say today, and we'll talk about this in our final session uh, later this afternoon, I'm tired today. <laughs> we won't be here too long this morning. But <clears throat> some say there's no moral code for the Christian to follow. Some cite we're not under any type of moral law or ab- obligation. And some say the only commandment of Jesus is that we love other people. Now, here's the first problem with that. There are people who hate God who love other people. Right? There are people who hate God but love their family. So they're loving others. Does that mean they have access into heaven? No. The second problem is our text and what it says. People doing or not doing his commandments identifies those who are either inside the city or outside. Now, the second problem is this. If the only commandment of Jesus is that we love others, John 14, 15, Jesus said, say Jesus said, if you love me, keep my, is that singular or plural? It's plural. Now, there are those who say, yes, that's just pointing to the fact that Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself. Well, what they completely ignore is that frames out the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Talks to the first four are the vertical commandments, our interaction with God. The last six are how we love our neighbor as ourselves, are the lateral commandments. Jesus is saying, listen, if you love me, you're going to live a life in obedience to my commandments. And we'll see how important that is in a moment. Now, let me add this. If the only command of Jesus is that we love other people, why is that not on the list of things that we're given here? That keep people outside of the the city. Why doesn't he say, well, you didn't love other people. That's why you're on the outside. We have a list of moral behaviors and failures that are listed in front of us that are important for us to recognize as the things that are within the commandments of God, because they follow the Ten Commandments, if you look at them in detail. And the Ten Commandments are what condemns a man to eternal death and identifies that we need someone to save us, and Jesus is able to do so. Amen? Now, the key to this section is the word practice. It means to abide or even continue to commit. Now, John in his first epistle said, he who uh, loves the Lord does not uh, continue in sin. He doesn't sin is actually the phrase he uses. But the, the phrase means content to continue or one who doesn't practice sin. There's a breaking from habitual, habitual practices that are identified as sin in scripture. Now, Christians break the commandments of God. The amen to that one was just as weak in first service. Christians break the commandments of God. Christians sin. Christians are convicted of their sin. Christians repent of their sin. Christians try not to repeat the same sin over and over. Because the fact is, when we sin, we are not placed outside of the gate because of the word 
practice. We are not content to continue in sin. Listen, I remember that time I did something wrong. It makes you sick, doesn't it? To do something that you know disappoints God. To do something that you know is in flat out disobedience to God. Because you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. The Spirit is grieved. And you lose your contentment and want to get it back. We want to live a contented and blessed life. Amen? Now Paul adds this insight in Romans 1, 28 to 32. And even as they, he's pointing back to those who denied God as creator. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge even though the evidence was overwhelming. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled, and here's a list of things that aren't fitting before God, being filled with all unrighteousness, which is defined as sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, being a troublemaker, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the, what's the next word? Righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, that means a second death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. There is a lot of approval of behaviors that are displeasing and unrighteous before God today. And there are many within the church who are accepting things that God has forbidden in an effort, as we talked about yesterday, to supposedly reach the world with a more user-friendly message, one that isn't quite so divisive, one that is more welcoming and even affirming. And we have churches who consider themselves to be an affirming church or a progressive church. Well, listen this morning. We don't depart from the Word of God in our moral standards and precepts. We let the Bible be our unit of measure as to how life is to be lived. Now, Jesus' last words in the Bible are about rewards and works. And work means deeds done. And is right by authority to bless those who do his commandments and to also deal with those as he sees fit. Uh, for those who break his commandments without remorse or repentance. Now, this gives us our first very simple bullet point, so to speak, for 2019 concerning the benediction of blessing. It's something we've said a multitude of times, something we'll say in the future. We packaged it like this for our benediction this morning, and it's just this. Listen, obedience to God's word will always lead to blessing. Obedience to God's word will always lead to blessings. Now, we need to note that obedience and good works don't qualify us for salvation. We're not saved by works. Amen? We can't earn our way into heaven. God is not looking for the people who have done really good. He's looking for really bad people to cover their sins in the blood of his sin. Because he has examined us all and said, there's none good, no, not one. Now... But the good works that don't qualify us for salvation do identify us as a saved and qualify us for rewards. Now, here's what we need to glean from this. Jesus said, I'm coming suddenly or unexpectedly or by surprise. And what you have done for me temporally will determine what you get from me eternally. Now, listen, 
we need to get away from thinking of heaven with the egalitarian lens that is dominating world thought today. Everybody has to have the same thing. Every job has to be of the same value and pay scale. Everybody has to have the same type of socialist uh, mentality here in the world in order for the world to arrive at a utopian state. Listen, socialism is not going to be practiced in heaven. Heaven is a theocracy. There's one king, and it is God. And he alone sits on the throne. And the fact of the matter is, there are going to be, there is a rank and file even amongst the angelic realm in the word of God. There are those like Michael and Gabriel who are named in scripture, who stand in the presence of God. And Michael's name means who is like God. And we know that there are other angels who are of a lesser rank and file. Seraphim and cherubim and archangels. And there is a structure in the heavenly realm. Now, for people to look at heaven and think it's going to be great because it's going to be some type of socialist empire, that's not what the Bible teaches. The fact is, what makes heaven heaven is that there's no pride there. That there's no envy there. That there's no jealousy there. And therefore, we need to quit minimizing the importance of serving God through good works and get to work for his name and glory. And again, I, I, I am always so blessed to hear from people whenever we hold an event about how awesome the people from Calvary Chapel Tufson are who serve and greet uh, them whenever they're coming through our doors or wherever we're having an outreach. And that's because we're not afraid of mentioning the subject of God being worthy of service. And some step up and get in the game and God is glorified and his kingdom advanced. That's what we're still here for. In 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we... According to his what? Promise. Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, Jesus is coming suddenly and without notice. Now listen, I thought this the most appropriate place to begin because the fact is at the end of the year and the beginning of another, people are making resolutions. They're making commitments to be different. They're saying my car is going to spend less time parked in front of Winchell's and more time parked in front of Gold's Gym or whatever 24-hour fitness. That's a commitment that is made. So, hey, let's just jump on a bandwagon and say, you know what, we're going to do more for God this year than we ever, ever have done before. I think that's a worthy place for us to start by remembering that obedience to his word is always going to lead to blessings, not just in this life, but even more so in the next. Now, look at 16 and 17 one more time. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever what? Desires, let him take the water of life 
freely. Now, the angel who has guided John through the series of visions that he had had that are recorded throughout this book is now authenticated by Jesus himself. Jesus said, I sent my angel to have these things communicated to you so you could write them down for the church. And it is to this angel that the full unveiling of Christ was determined to be revealed to both John and the world with some special application to the church. And we're looking at some of that closely now. Jesus then identifies himself, gives his qualifications, if you will, scripturally, as the root and the offspring of David, as recorded in Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Romans 1, 1 to 4 reminds us, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of who? David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the prophesied descendant of David, who is God's son, which was proven by the fact that because of his sinless life, the grave had no right to hold him. And therefore, he has authority over both the living and the dead. He then identifies himself as the bright and morning star, which we see recorded in Numbers twenty-four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of the tumult. Now, that doesn't need any explanation, so we'll move on. (laughs) Jesus is the star that came out of Jacob. He is the bright and morning star. Who holds a scepter? A king holds a scepter. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Moab is symbolic of Israel's and therefore God's enemies. And the Lord is going to destroy all the sons of the tumult. And the word tumult It literally means uprising. Figuratively, it means destruction. God is going to destroy all the sons of destruction. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12, that we talked about yesterday, about the lawless one being revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the what? The brightness of his coming. That's why he is identified as the bright and morning star. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among who? Those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Are we living in an age of strong delusion? That they should believe the lie. The lie is the Antichrist claim to be God. And they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in what? Unrighteousness. No. Jesus is going to destroy the sons of destruction with the brightness of his coming. And now John returns to the narrative and says, the spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? The church. The spirit and the church. The bride say come. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired invitation offered through the church for people to come to Jesus. If anyone hears what the Spirit says to the churches, say, come. Let the thirsty come. Whoever desires to come can take of the water of life freely. 
This is an open invitation to receive salvation from Jesus. He will not exclude anyone who comes to him. That's better news than that. He will not exclude anyone who comes to him. But we need to recognize that an invitation is both an opportunity and a responsibility. If we decline an invitation, who do we have to blame for not showing up? Only ourselves. The offer was made. It isn't because we were predestined to be saved and others were not. Whosoever will may come. Whoever desires may come. And John, again, is echoing the words of the prophet Isaiah, where he wrote in Isaiah 55, 1 to 3, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make what kind of covenant? An everlasting covenant with you. We have what's called a present imperative in our text. It's threefold in nature. Come, come, and then let him come. And it is telling us, see, the invitation is extended until the very moment when history passes into eternity and any invitations from that point on are going to cease. Now, in the Greek language, a present imperative is not a suggestion. It is a command. And that's what John is saying. That's what Jesus has said. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. He is commanding people to come to himself. And those who desire to respond to the invitation will come. Now, let me just pause for a moment. There's a lot of teaching today and a lot of mixed up things that are confusing to people about the fact that uh, Romans says that God has given to each one a measure of faith. And there are people that say, you know what, unless you're born again, You can't have the faith to believe. So God has to do the work beforehand, and you are a non-participant in any way, shape, or form in coming to Jesus. Well, that's based on a complete misunderstanding of faith, because people exercise faith all day, every day, who don't believe in God. You exercise faith every time you come up to a red light, and you stop, or I should say you come up to a green light, you're having faith that the light in the other direction is red. So you drive on through. People exercise faith all the time. You don't need to get saved in order by, uh, saved by God first in order to have faith. You've been given a measure of faith, which includes the capacity to accept God's invitation to be saved. And this open invitation is given by God, and he is telling the church to tell people to come. Extend the invitation. And in this present imperative before us, this is a command. And in this case, it's a command to come to Jesus because he is the water of life. And it implies he is the sole source of such water, which is exactly what he said to the uh, woman at the well in his conversation with her in John 4, where Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water or the well water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will what? Never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him the fountain of water springing up into what? Everlasting life. This was Jesus' invitation to the Samaritan woman at the well to come to me as the water or the fountain of water that brings eternal life. Now, here again, a simplistic 
point for our middle observation of this benediction of blessing. And here's what we also need to recognize from the final words of Jesus and the final chapter of the final book in the word of God. And it's just this. Inviting people to come to Jesus will always bless and honor God. If you want to live a life that blesses and honors God, invite people to Jesus. Inviting people to come to Jesus will always bless and honor God. Now, here's the best part. Anyone can do it. Now, here's the other part. Everyone should do it. And every invitation offered blesses and honors God because it's an act of obedience. Listen, even when the recipient refuses God's very kind offer. And that's why God has just told us. He said, go to the world and preach the gospel, and I'm really going to reward those who are good at it. Is that what it says? No. He just said, go to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go to the world and preach the gospel. Everybody, go preach to everybody. That's how we might paraphrase that. And that's the end of the directive. Because the fact is, sometimes when you are preaching the gospel, people are going to say, starts with N, ends with O. People are going to say what? No, no thanks. I'm not interested in what you're selling, so to speak. So God limited our responsibility to simply scattering the seed or preaching the gospel to anyone and everyone. It's an act of obedience, and it's something that honors and blesses God. Now, we can't miss a connection between what we read in 12 to 15 and what we read in verse 17. The invitation to come needs to be offered as the response to that invitation is going to determine all eternal destinies. Can you get to heaven without Jesus? You must be born again. And you can only be born again through a personal relationship with Jesus, confessing your sin, recognizing that he, being faithful and just, will forgive the sin of the unrighteous who come to him. Now, Jesus says, I want the church to know that what John wrote was by my approval and that the church needs to remember that inviting people to Christ is why the church is still on the earth. That's why we're here. There's no other reason to leave us here. We have a wonderful eternity awaiting us. It can get started today, as far as I'm concerned, as long as we all go together. (laughs) Amen? I'm ready for heaven to be there with all of you for all of eternity, looking at Jesus, dumbfounded that we actually made it. Now, Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls has wasted his time. He who wins souls is what? Is wise. Jesus went on to say in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And there's no better fruit to bear than casting out seed of the gospel, or gospel seed, if you will, so people can respond and come to faith in Christ and taste the living water that springs up in them into everlasting life. Now, we're going to learn over and over and over this year of how God blesses us. And we're going to learn the same in reverse on how to bless God. But we also need to recognize that this last chapter of the last book of the Bible regarding the last words of Jesus, that his subject is inviting people to come. And therefore, it makes it worthy of our most or more earnest heed. Jesus is coming suddenly and his reward is with him. And those who bless him and honor him by doing his commands, especially the command to go to the world and preach the gospel, are going to be blessed in this life and eternity. Now, if you want this year to be blessed by God, and God to be blessed by you, there's a surefire formula right in front of us, 
Invite people to come to Jesus and tell them, whoever thirst may come. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now let's wrap it up with a second read of 18 to 21. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, uh, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming, how? Quickly, amen, even so, John says, Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, this is the third time in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, recording the last words of Jesus, that we're reminded of the suddenness of his coming. I think he wants us to get it. And therefore, it's interesting, as we mentioned earlier, that there is a warning in the last letter of Paul. There's a warning in the last words of Jesus. There's a warning in the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with what? With a curse. So again, we see the same type of packaging. Paul talking about the wonderful things after warning about Alexander the the coppersmith talking about how he was abandoned or forsaken, as was Jesus. Now here again, we have the wonderful word that Elijah the prophet, coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. And then the word of caution or the warning, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Here Jesus, listen, warns at the close of the revelation, that those who trifle with the words of the prophecy of this book by either adding to or taking away from them, God will take away his part from the book of life, the holy city, and the wonderful things written in this book about the afterlife and all eternity. And again, Jesus says, I testify to these things. That's why we can say, even though John may have penned the words, that's why we can say Jesus is saying this. He says, I testify to these things. These are the things that are on my heart. Now, I have to mention this again because it's been a while and I want to spend a couple of moments on that. And that is regarding, or on this rather, and that is regarding what's called the free grace movement. And it teaches what has been labeled as hyper grace. And it's done great damage to the body of Christ and the effectiveness of the church. And the main reason I say that is it promotes kind of an easygoing, do nothing, don't worry about your sin mentality in the church. And that's something we need to be careful about. Now, part of it is because of the misunderstanding of what grace actually is. Now, I need to remind you that grace does not mean unmerited favor in the New Testament. The Greek word used in the New Testament is charis. It's the only word used in the New Testament for grace. It's the word right here in verse 21 of Revelation chapter 22. The charis of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, what the word charis actually means is divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in the life. In other words, grace is not divine passivity towards Christian sin. It isn't that there's no moral code or it's a a doctrinal term called antinomianism, meaning no law. 
There's no law for the Christian to be concerned about. There's no law for the Christian to guide his life by. And that's what the hyper-grace movement teaches. You don't need to worry about it. God loves you. He understands you're struggling. He knows that you're weak. He knows you're going to fall into sin. Yet, what do we do with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch the unclean things, says the Lord. Listen, we need to understand what grace actually is. And as far as we know from Scripture, Jesus never taught a message on grace. Paul never taught a message on grace. Peter never taught a message on grace. James never taught a message on grace. Yet there are people today who don't teach on anything else. And listen, grace is a wonderful thing. Somebody say amen. Amen. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Grace is God's part. Faith is our part. The fact is, it's gotten so bad in this hyper-grace movement that there are Christians today who are saying things like, God's grace covers your sin. God's grace does not cover your sin. Jesus' blood covers your sin. And God's grace sent Jesus to shed his blood for your sin. And the fact is, the word grace appears in the Bible 148 times in the English translation that we use, I should say. 20 times in the Old Testament, we'll find the Hebrew word Cain. If you're using uh, our English alphabet character, C-H-E-N-E, is how you would spell the Hebrew word translated as Cain. And Cain is from which, or from where, we get the definition of unmerited favor. It simply means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. We'll find it in Genesis, when Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Was Noah inferior to God? Hello? Is Noah inferior to God? Did God make a way for Noah to be lifted up above his wrath when he poured it out on the whole world? So Noah found unmerited favor in the eyes of God. Now, again, that is a valid understanding of grace from the perspective of God's action on behalf of man. Now, interesting that the word charis is found in the New Testament. Let me see if you can pass the test. Um, first service was absolutely silent on this. What's 148 minus 20? Thank you. I told him you guys would do better. You've been up longer. Now, it's found in the New Testament 128 times. Now, listen close. One is in Luke, four are in John. Neither Matthew or Mark uses the word grace. Ten times it's found in the book of Acts. Now, Of the 128 times where grace is found in the New Testament, 30 of them are used in an opening greeting or closing salutation, just like we see here in verse 21. Sixty times grace is used in the epistles describing grace as an attribute of God. That means grace is mentioned as a doctrine in the New Testament 23 times, and all 23 of those times are on a near exhaustive dialogue about grace recorded in the book of Romans, where he is describing the doctrinal aspect of grace. Now, this is important to highlight because it tells us that when God stooped to inferior humans in kindness... The end result was divine inspiration in the heart that reflects in the life. You know, I hear so many things said that are frustrating to me as a student of God's word and as a pastor with a responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth. And one of the more bizarre things I'm hearing these days is the demeaning of 
what the Bible says and what the Spirit actually does in our lives when he takes up residence in our lives. And some would accuse many, and I would probably put myself in that category according to their definitions, of preaching a behavior modification gospel. Well, let me just say this. If you met Jesus and your behavior isn't modified, you didn't meet the Jesus of the Bible because he modifies everybody's behavior that he meets. And no, that's not the whole point of the book. The book is to have our sin covered with the blood of Jesus. Or the point is to have our sin covered with the blood of Jesus. But as it's been well said, you know, Jesus cleans his fish after he catches them. But may I remind you, he cleans all his fish. He changes us. And that's what Paul was saying, you know, when he's talking about this list of unrighteous behaviors. Again, he's writing to a very carnal city of Corinth. And he's talking about all these practices that were found uh, in their lives. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. What happened after that? Their behavior was modified. So we need to be careful about all these demeaning statements that are made that are actually biblical concepts. Knowing God modifies your behavior. Divine inspiration in the heart is going to reflect in your life. That's what grace is. Grace is not divine passivity. Grace is divine activity changing you as you seek to live for him. Are you here this morning? Now, here's where we need to walk carefully through this next section. Oh, I was hoping we were out of time. I guess we are. I can't cover this. It's just couple of minutes here and I'll let you go. Jesus says those who add to or take away from the words. And remember, he testifies to these things. John wrote the words. Jesus testified they're true. Anyone who takes away from the words of this prophecy, he'll take away their part from the book of life, the holy city, and the things written in this book. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? It all depends on your understanding or interpretation of the book of life. Now, two book of life, two things. First John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Propitiation means debt satisfaction. Jesus satisfied the sin debt of the whole... What's it say? The whole world. Now, Revelation 3, 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, one of the things we need to do in our approach to that particular passage, which is very confusing to many, is first of all, remember, that's a promise, not a threat. He says, I will not. I promise you, I will not. I'm not going to blot your name out. The overcomer will be clothed in white garments. Now, some say this implies that ones who were once righteous can become unrighteous and have their names blotted out of the book of life. And there are many opinions about the book of life. Now, I know how to get your name written there, and it's written in blood, not your own, the blood of Jesus. Now, there are some who say only the elect have their names written in the book of life. Others say Jesus is threatening to blot out the name of errant believers. But if we consider in Ephesians that we are given as a down payment of our future inheritance, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, there is not a doctrine of the unindwelling of the Holy Spirit taught in the Bible. So if you have a guaranteed future inheritance verified by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to heaven if the Holy Spirit is in you. 
Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't take up residence in filthy houses. He washes us in the blood of the Son and then takes up residence in our lives. So we need to understand the importance of that as well. It isn't that we can just live however we want because we had an experiential moment in a church service at a crusade type event. But now let me just say this. If we consider that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, did he? If we consider that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, then it is possible, and I stress that it is possible. This is an issue I've never heard anyone say with absolute authority or dogmatically that their position was provable and uh, could be backed up completely by Scripture. But it is possible that since Christ died for the sins of the whole world, everyone's name is in the book of life, and dying in unbelief blots it out. It's possible that that is the way to interpret it. The Bible says he died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And there is a promise not to be blotted out, which does imply names will be blotted out. But it doesn't imply the believer's name will be blotted out. So, again, I personally, even though I would not hold to the the tulip or the five-point Calvinistic view on eternal security, I do believe that the Holy Spirit, when he's in you, is a guarantee that you have a future inheritance that is not of this world, but it is in heaven. Now, I will say some would disagree with me on that particular interpretation, but it seems to be consistent with what the Bible teaches about that guarantee I mentioned a moment ago. But here's what we need to close with, and here's what this warning is all about. In Matthew seven twenty-one to 23, when Jesus wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, he said, not everyone, say not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? does the will of my Father. Would not that phrase equate to do my commandments? Same thing. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? It seems like they forget the powers in his name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who do what? What's the word? Practice. Unrepentantly, repent. Repeatedly, without remorse, practice what? Lawlessness. Now, the warning here is not to think or be fooled into thinking you're saved because you say you know the Lord when your life is filled with lawlessness or immorality, like Peter said. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and behavior, knowing that the Lord is coming? Now, this is why the free grace movement is so very, very dangerous. Now, here's what I'll leave you with, and I'll let you go. Our last reality from this benediction of blessing offered by Jesus himself is this. We can know without question our eternal destiny by examining how we treat the word of God. I know people over the years have said, I don't know if I'm really saved. Well, what's your view of the word of God? Is it subjective to your own opinion? Do you take a cut-and-paste approach to it? Or you, do you see it as Jesus did, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Listen, I'll tell you one thing. I was thinking back in uh, considering this point. When uh, God was healing our marriage, and uh, Terry was raised in a completely different background than I was, and I was a backslidden Christian, and she actually had gotten saved while we were separated, And I tell you, I don't know that I've ever seen in my whole life any human being that consumed the Word of God day in, day out, 
every single day of the week. She couldn't get enough of it. It was driving me crazy. I was still backslidden. But something real happened because it changed her her perspective on the Bible. She couldn't get enough of it. She had to eat it all day long and consume it all day long and know more and more and more and more about who God is and what he had for her. It isn't because we say, Lord, Lord. Lots of people can say that, right? Lots of people can say, oh, yes, I know the Lord. I'm a Christian. I raised my hand, walked down the field, walked down an aisle, stood in front of a a platform. But where we need to land this morning in conclusion, is this my third conclusion or fourth? (laughs) One of these will be the real one. Is what Jesus said here about those who do his commandments. They have the right to the tree of life. But outside, those who have the right to the tree of life are those who lived a lawless life. Listen. The psalmist said, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name in 138.2 for your loving kindness and truth. For you have magnified your word above all your, what? Name. Listen, I don't think it's a coincidence because there are none in the Bible that this is the last statement in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible and indicates it's true for all the books that were before it. We don't trifle with the word of God. And if you want to know what's going on in your heart and your eternal destiny, how do you view the word of God? Do you see it as restrictive and binding or do you see it as protective and freeing? Listen, I've lived a restricted and binding life serving the devil. And the Son has set me free, and I am free indeed. Amen. And Father, we thank you for this encouraging word to kick us off into a year where commitments of change are made by people in the world and in the church alike. So, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity through our new word for 2019 to live a year blessing you and learning more about how to be blessed by you. Thank you for the wonderful things that await us. Thank you for the wonderful things we have in this life because of our obedience to you. So, Lord, I pray that we would not allow those, God, who are errantly interpreting Scripture to force things into our thinking that we're some kind of legalist or putting ourselves under the law when we want to live a life that is holy and acceptable to you, which is a reasonable act of service. So help us in the things that we have gleaned thus far as we now venture out into a new year, preaching the gospel to every creature, living in a manner that does not minimize compromise or diminish our word. So we thank you, Lord, for this blessed text this morning, and we look forward to how we'll be blessing your great name this year by doing your commandments. And we, as John said, would add in conclusion, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, he's coming suddenly. And I believe he's coming soon. So let's finish strong and finish well and for his glory. Amen.